Good morning. My name is Dwight Eisler, and my pronouns are he, him. And I just realized um, when I was writing this that um, my wife Wendy and I have been attending Wildwood for about a decade now. So I'm a new person. <laughs> in one of my theology classes in, in cemetery, a uh, cemetery, wow, that's a gooder. I can't do much better than that, can I? <laughs> I don't know if that says something about that, but uh, <laughs> how many more of those I'm going to do today? Wow. In seminary, I remarked to our professor, uh, Amanda Hackney, um, that I was really not a theologian. I was studying to be a counselor. And I knew what was coming because she, you know, all of a sudden immediately corrected me with, you, everyone's a theologian. We all have thoughts and experiences and feeling. We've all studied something about God. Even if you're an atheist, you have beliefs. So yes, you're a theologian. So, um, But I required, re replied quite quickly backwards that, well, okay, then I'm not a very good theologian. <laughs> and she kind of she smiled, and, and I think she tried to make me a little bit better of, of, a, of a theologian-ish. Um, but I, I've got this example here, kind of. This, is, this isn't one of my papers, but this was something she gave us that was poorly written, and we had to, to correct it, kind of. So this is, I don't know if you can see all the red on the pages, that, that's what we corrected. Unfortunately, my papers didn't come back a lot different than this. <laughs> um, that being said, she was a really good teacher. She was a wonderful, she was a great professor, I wouldn't want to argue with her very much because um, she knew her stuff. Um, but really, um, I think the fact is that I, I haven't put enough study work into being a really good theologian. Um, Garth Hewitt Fisher from Mount Royal, um, I used to borrow books from him, commented once that a lot of us know just enough to be dangerous. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> uh, but at least I, I'm part of that group, but at least I, I know that. Anyways, fortunately, most of what is being said today comes from several sources um, that I trust more than myself. And uh, I remarked to Joe, hopefully he doesn't have to spend the next five sermons gathering everybody back again. But he said that all people always come back for Christmas service, so we'll see you then. <laughs> and one of the things I appreciate about Joe is generally somewhere in his sermon, he interjects something like, you don't have to believe everything I say, or you can have your own opinion, or you might have a different experience than I do. And um, I find that very useful, very helpful. In the counseling world, that is really foundational um, to how we function. You have to be very tentative to the person you're sitting with. Um, they are actually the expert in their own lives. You are not so much the expert as they are. Um, they may not experience life the way you do, the way I do. Um, they may have different thoughts, and you have to work with, work with that. Use their experiences and their words and really, really track with what they're doing. And expand, then you, you take that and you kind of expand that larger. What, what can you do with what you already know? And here's some new information. It's seeing from, it's, it's, you know, half the job is seeing from somebody else's perspective. Um, so... You know, for everyone here, I'll say the same thing. It's okay to disagree with what, what I say. It's okay to have a different opinion. It's okay to see from a, a different perspective. And I think one of the most, or a concerning statement to me, is when someone says, we know how to rightly justify the word of God or discern the word of God. And um, that is concerning to me 
um, because yeah, it says a few things, to, few things to me. It says, I'm not willing to consider the possibility that someone else be me right, or there might be some flaws in my thinking, or that someone else has a valid opinion, or that someone else's experience is also valid. To me, it, I know it says a few things about that in Scripture, discerning the Word of God, but I, I think sometimes that gets taken much too far. And I think this is the journey we're on now, hopefully today, to consider the possibility that someone else's interpretation of Scripture is valid. Someone else's interpretation is important or significant. And that something exists beyond what we already know. And today, walking through the Gospel of John, um, part of it anyways, God dances with us where we are, but he also beckons us to a dance that is different than what we know and experience. So it, it's that kind of dance, I think. So here's a, I'm just going to go back and recap um, what we've kind of been working on, and it's a story of life paths. Um, so there's the, the book of Matthew. That's a little small, hey? The book of Matthew was, was kind of path one. This is the first path of hearing the call, climbing the mountain, how I fit into this God story, how things work, how I want them to work, and how to walk in this upside-down way of Jesus. Um, the second path is the book of Mark, persisting in the storm. Uh, something has gone wrong, the shock and terror of what's happened. To, and where is this Jesus? He's out walking on the water when we're floundering in the boat. And the third path is kind of the, the book of John, and it's accepting deeper wisdom. God is in here, in all. It's kind of giving up, fixing things, giving up our limitations. It's a journey of patience, a path of joy in the struggle. And John says this, John is, is literally saying, this is who I love, come and meet Jesus. And we're examining the book of John from, and I'm, I forgot to ask, it's Alexander, how do you say the last word, Shia? Shia, sorry, okay, there we go. Alexander Shia's perspective. It's about this third path of, of deeper wisdom. And today's sermon is about Jesus meeting people where they are, but it's also Jesus calling them to meet deeper truth of the Christ or the word, as John puts it. And one of my favorite pieces of scripture is the beginning in John. All, my all time, I think my all-time favorite pieces is that, that right the beginning of John, where he starts out, in the beginning was the word. And if someone actually reads that out loud, or if someone's here and they read that from, uh, from the pulpit or, or anywhere, it's almost, I just, I've got this surge of emotion and I almost start to cry. And... Um, I, I watched some of uh, The Chosen. Um, I don't know if anybody has seen any of these. Um, it's a, kind of a new series out. And I've enjoyed certain parts of this quite immensely. Anyways. But one of the, one of the, the chapters starts with um, John is struggling how to begin writing his book. And, he, and then it flashes back to a bunch of things that he did with Jesus. And in the end of this piece of the show there's this showing of John again and, he, and he's writing the book and he starts to write I'll gag here I go in the beginning it was the word and the word was with God and I was sitting with my extended family we're all scrunched into the living room of our house and little girls there and mom and dad and sisters and brothers-in-laws and sister-in-laws and and I'm sitting kind of on the on the outside end and I just like I could barely contain myself. The tears are running down my face. My chest is heaving. Like, 
if I'd have let myself go, there would have been weeping and wailing and sobbing. And, you know, I, I didn't do that. Um, I could, Wendy looked over at me and was like, what's up with you? Um, but I, I get like that from that first passage of John. And what, it is, what is it about that passage that causes this reaction? And for me, for one thing, it's about meeting again the one who encompasses everything. It's like this epiphany that happens over and over again. And secondly, I think part of it is the poetry. Um, it, you know, John was steeped in Hebrew and Aramaic, and, and as um, Alexander says, um, Aramaic is a very poetic language. It's not like Greek. Greek is very conceptual. It's very logical. And, and going from Aramaic and Hebrew to, to Greek is, is a difficult thing to do. It gets lost, things get lost. In, in that. And I think for me, some of the poetry, I'm not, the other thing is, I am not a Greek scholar and I'm not a Hebrew scholar. So this is, this is what I'm reading, but, but how I read into it. But I think some of the poetry somehow sneaks into this prologue in John. And it's beautiful. Um, but, but a lot of the rest of it is missing some of this poetry. And like Jode said earlier, the Greek doesn't contain the variances in light and darknesses. And in Aramaic, it's assumed that the two exist together, light and darkness. We need both darkness and light. And it's interesting, Alexander says, that the idea that evil is dark, or dark is evil, and light is good, really didn't happen until the 1800s. In fact, there were some churches that before um, were specifically designed for, for very nuances of light and darkness in the churches. There wasn't, and then after this, they pulled out a bunch of the windows that were designed for this and put in, you know, opaque ones or whatever, so they could have more light. Well, I guess there'd be a reason for that, but they lost part of the significance of the church, that there should be darkness and there should be light in different shades. Um, and so that only happened, what he says, after the 1800s. And where does this thinking lead us? Into separation. And, and you know where this goes. Okay, is that which is dark, is that evil? So are, are, is someone with dark skin evil? And that's where some of it goes. And that's been used quite diabolically. But is the dark which brings rest and sleep evil? I don't think so. Are the shades of light and darkness not beautiful in art? If you had no shades, <laughs> it would be pretty flat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, jump over a bit now. There's a term in counseling called the I-Thou relationship, and it was developed by Martin Buber in the late 1800s. And it means that two people actually sit down together and really see each other. Um, it's an interpersonal encounter that contains a wonderful potential. I don't know, can you read that? Okay. A wonderful potential that far exceeds the two separate people in conversation. The potential becomes apparent when two people actively and authentically engage each other in the here and now and truly show up to one another. In this encounter, a new relational dimension, the between, becomes manifest. When this between dimension exists, the relationship becomes greater than the individual contributions of those involved. This type of meeting is what Buber described as an I-thou relationship. And I'm kind of reading into things a little bit, but I kind of see this in, in part of this part of the Gospel of John. 
the other thing is, you know, I basically moved in my life Jesus from being a carpenter to a counselor, so that's cool. But part of this is about deeper wisdom. In the beginning of John, the prologue sets us back into the Garden of Eden with this beautiful poetry. Jesus Christ always was, and everything is contained in the Christ. Everything has its being in the Christ. Next, John writes about the wedding, Jesus and Mary, the perfect Adam and Eve, the stone earthenware jars, us, together, filled with wine. Jesus, the Christ who existed before all things, created the garden, and he invites us back into the garden. And after that, the next 10 chapters in John are the great teaching discourses where John breaks through the beliefs of first century Judaism. So Jesus Christ then becomes the, the Christ for all tribes, the Messiah for everyone, for all. And each story begins with someone trapped inside a room, unable to get out. Jesus offers a key to come out and understand and experience who the Messiah is. Each story builds from the simple to the complex, and each story builds more comprehension to what Jesus is doing. And it's also interesting that this story parallels the Genesis story. In the Genesis story, creation builds from the basic to the increasingly complex. And it has nothing to do with significance. The simple things are not more significant or important than the complex things. It's just a matter of complexity. And then there's this, this progression that alludes in, in John's gospel from these 10 discourses. There's this, it alludes back to the garden that, that alludes to wholeness and shalom, um, simple to complex anyways. I had to stick this in. I'm gonna apologize for the next two slides before I show you to them. I just couldn't, I just couldn't resist, so sorry. Anyways, <laughs> this, is, this is three stages of Corvettes. You know, everybody knows I'm a Corvette guy, right? So the very first one at the top right, top left, is the original um, first, first generation. The next one across from it is the second generation, and the bottom one is the third generation. There's now eight generations. Now, the, the complexity increases from each one of these. This is the final one today. That is a seriously complex race machine. That, that is a race machine. But are any of them more beautiful than the other? Depends what you like. One is more, as they got older, one got more complex, more sophisticated, but they're all beautiful. And it's so kind of like this with these stories in John. He starts with the simple, simple ideas, and each story in these 10 discourses, or the 10 chapters he tells, becomes increasingly complicated. So, the first story is about Nicodemus, the learned teacher who comes to see Jesus at night. Jesus breaks the first rule in, in first century Judaism. A learned teacher would never meet privately to converse with someone that was considered to be at best a confused teacher, an incorrect teacher, and at worst, a blasphemer. He would never do that. So this is the simplest contradiction of first century Furthermore, most biblical studies mention that Nicodemus comes at night to hide the fact that he is seeing Jesus. Maybe it will go really badly for him if the other teachers find out what he's done. They're going to not be happy with him. However, Alexander takes a different approach. The Jewish new day begins just after dark, after dusk. And in that thinking, 
God starts fresh and new with followers after that. This is the new day. And so John here is writing between the lines. Jesus the Christ offers Nicodemus a fresh start. Jesus meets Nicodemus. He answers his questions, challenges belief, and offers a new way to a new beginning. So he, John, Nicodemus is inside this black box, this room, and can't get out. He comes to see Jesus, and John is saying he's looking for a new beginning, but he can't get out. And Jesus both follows and leads in this, what I call, dance. Jesus follows with the person, answers his questions, follows with them well. I think he'd make a good counselor. And then, and then he starts to dance himself. He says, this is the next steps. And Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, doesn't understand that. He can't move beyond those confines of his room, of his dance. He cannot cross the levels of class and tribe that Jesus has offered. And Jesus leaves it in Nicodemus' hands. What are you willing to forgo? What are you willing to let go of? What are you willing to accept that is new wine? Nicodemus showed up to the dance. The Christ called him, but he couldn't cross those boundaries. And so this story is a, a story of a seemingly impenetrable barrier, kind of a lost dance. And next we'll get into kind of what I was looking at today was, was the, the interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well. And the scripture chosen is at the end of the story. It highlights the work that Jesus is doing, has been doing, the benefits, the people that have been benefiting. You know, the disciples are, uh, are doing the work and reaping some of the benefits too. People are coming. Um, the, you know, Jesus and the woman talk. She believes him and that whole town comes out and, and, and talks with Jesus and believes for two days. So this is an overview, but the intricacies of the story are really in the many previous verses. So we'll actually spend more time in that, but it's a bit long to read that whole story here. And again, the complexity is building from Nicodemus's encounter to the women's counter. And John uses a really interesting literary device here. So in, in verse 21, if we look, when Jesus declares, believe me, woman, a time is coming. Alexander notes that John uses a certain word for woman. And again, I'm not that scholar, so I'll take what he says because he seems pretty knowledgeable. Um, he makes the point that Jesus use a, uses a word that translates as every woman. Literally, Eve is the word he's almost using. So as John is pointing back to the garden again. Last week, Joe talked about Mary symbolizing Eve, Jesus, or that was the week before. That was two weeks ago. Um, Mary at the wedding was symbolizing Eve, Jesus, Adam. Now I was wondering, is it possible that the woman at the well, the one with five husbands, living with another, not married, and a Samaritan yet represents Eve as well because he calls her every woman. He's actually calling her Eve. Well, to that, first century, that would be blasphemous. So we're moving in complexity in stories. That would be blasphemous. And yes, here it is. By asking that every woman, Eve, to serve him, Jesus is inviting everyone from every tribe to serve him. This is kind of funny, but I don't know about you, but when the significance of this hit me, and there's some other things in my life that, that why it did, um, but when this dawned on me, I was sitting at my computer, and I actually uttered a few words that I probably shouldn't repeat here. It really, it was just what was going on in my head really surprised me. But the profane had been classified with the holy. The distinction was erased. 
the woman was the same clay jar waiting to be filled with wine. All of this pointing back to Genesis connected something for me. And here's where it connected with my life. I used to spend quite a bit uh, of time just meditating. Um, I just would be quiet until I believed the Holy Spirit had spoken something. And once I believed, the words were, I want to take you back to the garden, uh, studying a few things. And, and that statement allowed me to transcend a few of the beliefs I held at the time. It moved me from some rigid things into a more fluid thinking. And now this meaning has been, you know, expanded some more. And I think I've gotten more out of this study than, <laughs> well, than I expected. And actually, when I, when I was reading this and I connected those dots together, I was sitting at my computer, and I was so excited I got up. I was just jittery, like I was literally, like I had 10 cups of coffee. I was just buzzing. Um, it was so exciting. So, you know, if anybody else is that excited right now and you want to get up and shout or jump or whatever, you know, or just get up from your nap. <laughs> Another teaching point in this discourse is the symbolic act of drawing water. Water is life-giving, but we don't really understand that here, I don't think. So water to us sometimes is just wasting for whatever we desire. And I came a bit closer to realizing that life is water living out at the farm. We've got this deep well that goes down several hundred feet and um, we've got a pump in the well and, and it pumps the water into the house but it's not really very pure so we've got this big water system in the house, purifies the water, dumps it in two 300 gallon tank. It's 2,700 liters. The house also, the pump also, the system serves several houses, <coughs> not just ours, for the Harderville. Um, we really have good water. But in a sh the, the pump failed, the system failed. A and I went downstairs and it's like, oh, these tanks are, they're going down and the pump isn't running. And in a really short period of time, Harderville had just about drained our tanks of water. And panic, uh oh, <coughs> we don't have any other really water supply. And there's a lot of toilets that have to be used and a lot of people, I mean, for a few households. And on top of that, it was Friday of a long weekend. You don't get parts on the Friday of a long weekend in North Battleford. So double panic. But basically, there was a small, there's a, a small computer on board that controls everything and it had failed. And I looked at it and studied it it's like, you know what, if I bypass this and hook this up here, the pump will run. We just have to turn it on until the tanks are full and then turn it off. So I did that, and I, I think I was kind of the hero of the Harderville that weekend. <laughs> Phew, no more stinky bodies, and we can use the toilets. That's a really good thing. So I had this brush with running out of water. It's like, <gasps> what are we going to do? But, you know. We bypassed it, we got it fixed, and we didn't really be affected by it. So I had this brush with running out of water, but never really quite got there. But when John was writing, water was life. And Jacob's well was for his tribe. And it was an example for Jacob and all his descendants that God was their supply. And now Jesus comes along at this interaction at the well, and he's offering living water. And they, water is life, living water. 
And it wasn't just for Jacob's tribe, but it was for every tribe. You know, Jesus is the life-giving water that is for everybody. And when it, it just flows up and comes up within us, it overflows us. So the, the encounter is getting more complex. Jesus is breaking through several first century barriers. First, he's talking to a, a woman. Secondly, he's talking to a Samaritan. Another thing, he's calling her Eve holy. Wow. And Jesus addresses her, and I'm going to go like this, darkness, because I no longer actually like the term. He draws her in by her attention to her life. He, he actually jumps into the conversation and says, oh yeah, I know who you are, this is who you are. But there's no condemnation in what he says. There's no judgment. He invites her into this encounter. He starts dancing with her. He's drawing her closer. And she notices this. He's a prophet. You're a prophet. But you're not condemning me. So she moves into this dance with him. She questions him about their beliefs. And Jesus answers her questions just as well as he answered Nicodemus's questions. And she's got this great question. She wonders about, well, proper worship. You say it's supposed to be like this. We say it's supposed to be like this. What is it? <laughs> what a great question. I think it has to be one of the ultimate questions. Where do we worship? How do we worship? What does that mean? And we all knew what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. So to me, this is the question. What a great dance. This is the next step in John's increasingly complex teaching discourse. The talk of mountains and temples, they're not the powerful places anymore. And the people that hold these powerful places, they're not really the powerful people. And I think at the heart of it, the woman's question was, am I worthy enough? Am I worthy enough? And Jesus does a good job of answering that question. And this to me is this I-thou relationship, this dance. And the woman actually becomes more as the conversation and the dance unfold. Whoops, I missed a slide. Uh -huh. So worshiping in spirit and truth are, are one of the next things they talk about. And they're a reference back to Moses and Elijah. John is steeped in Aramaic, Hebrew, the Torah. Moses <laughs> is about law and discipline. And Elijah is about mercy and compassion. So what John here is saying is that Jesus the Christ, that Moses and Elijah, are, are remade into one. These two opposing truths dance with each other. They're wrapped around each other. They're inseparable. They exist in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ contains all. In law and discipline, in mercy and compassion, Jesus answered the woman's question, you are worthy. You are worthy. She's excited. She used to be in the box, in the room. She dances with Jesus. He hands her the keys and she comes out and says, I am worthy. With everything included in my life, I am worthy. And the story closes with many Samaritans believing. This is really a new understanding. There is a movement from the story of Nicodemus from this impenetrable barrier to the woman at the well with the ability to accept the new, the new way, the new living water for everyone. And in, in those examples, I, I see that John has you know, crafted, I see the dance that Jesus invites us into. 
Jesus follows and he leads. And I saw the following and leading at the wedding. The following and leading with Nicodemus. The following and leading with the woman at the well. And the town that came to listen to Jesus for two whole days. He, he became the Christ to them. The beginning and the end. The everything in between. And that's the I-thou relationship. Jesus the Christ dances with us. He seeds us. He lets us lead for a while. And he invites us deeper into a dance. Jesus leads us into, into new realities. It's both us and Jesus. It's a both and kind of thing. Once upon a time, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, when I attended a Pentecostal church, I did some really weird things. But I could kind of get away from them because we were all a little bit weird. And we're all a little weird here too, so that's okay. So once at, at, at a prayer meeting, I felt that Jesus wanted to dance with me. So I got up and I, I actually danced around the room. And most of the people's eyes were closed so they didn't see me, but I'm not sure they would have cared anyways. But as I danced, I felt this presence with me and I could almost, almost, almost see the face of Jesus. And I was completely overwhelmed with his presence. And I spoke out the words, you are so beautiful. And I could feel that from the depths of my being. Just this is the most beautiful person face I've ever seen. My heart was captivated and I, I really felt like a bride in a groom's arms, dancing. In, in Christ, the beginning, the ending, the all-encompassing all one, he was dancing with me. And in a sense, I, I call this kind of ecstasy. <laughs> you might call it something else and that's okay. But to me, Alexander's study has pushed that experience even farther. It's kind of like in that dance, Jesus has looked back at me and said, you know what, you are beautiful as well. What you call your darkness has been met with light, the two are entwined. The word, the logos, the ultimate truth desires to dance with me, with us, to envelop the space we're in and lead us into new understandings and experiences. And Alexander says, I really like this, and I didn't get the slide up. I, didn't, I forgot about that, so sorry. But he, this is what he said. <clears throat> so, if we think we know exactly what is going on, and what we should do, and how others should behave, the consistent advice of the third path is, do nothing except meditate and pray. Sit still. Rest in the garden and reflect. Close your eyes and use your inner sight. Watch the vision unfold around you. And if we do that, maybe we'll find ourselves on the third path, the one that is patient in the storms, the one that accepts other people, the one that looks at other people and creates I-thou relationships. We are known by that whom it is that circles the cosmos. You know that picture there was of the Trinity and the creation and everything? We are known by that. The Christ is beyond anything we can know, boundless in our pain and joy. And all of that somehow, somehow gives us, I don't know, a flower or a blossom that we hold inside and we hold together in the joy and the pain.